You're listening to Season 2, Episode 7 of the Attempt Adventure Podcast. A podcast all about travel, finding adventure every day, and seeking out adventurous ways to make life more interesting. From Bangkok, Thailand, I am your host, Michael DeRosiers, joined as always by my co-host... James Barrett from Boulder, Colorado. In this episode, we are joined by adventurer and podcaster Scott Gurian from the Far From Home podcast. Scott shares his adventures traveling in Iran, road tripping across Mongolia, exploring the ruins of Chernobyl, participating in a sacred Peruvian ayahuasca ceremony, and more. But first, before we get to that, James, did you do anything new or adventurous this week, or are you going to be receiving the first penalty of season two? You know, I did. I tried a authentic Nepalese restaurant. Now that's interesting. What did you have? I don't quite know. <laughs> <laughs> I I sort of just went in and was like, feed me, please. And they brought me things and everything was delicious. A lot of vegetables. I believe everything I had was at the very least vegetarian. It was great. It was, it was fun. That's very cool, James. I'll find the name of it and shout them out later. I don't think I've ever had Nepalese food before. It was very similar to Indian food, like what we think of as Indian food. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. But different in certain ways. I don't know. I liked it better, I think. Anyone from Nepal listening, send me recipes. Yeah, for sure. Very good. Well, James, I have to admit, I did not do anything new or interesting this week. All right. So, folks, how this works. We have a game that we play where every week we must do something new or adventurous. And we can define that however we want, but if we haven't done anything, we receive a penalty. The penalty used to be that the other person had to give us a challenge to do, but we ended up being far too nice to each other. (laughs) So this year we have introduced the Wheel of Penalty, a wheel of ten different challenges of various descriptions. If we fail to do our penalty in an allotted time, and James, you can actually give me the allotted time that you're going to give me because some of these might be a little bit more than a one-week thing. If we fail to do the penalty in the allotted time, we owe the person 50 American dollars. That's 25 Jeffersons. (laughs) That's 50 (laughs) Sacagaweas. I'm talking talking real American cash (laughs) (laughs) that's a lot of pennies (laughs) and actually one of the spaces on the wheel is automatic $50 penalty and that's a totally possible valid thing however James just to make it a little bit more interesting I've also added a segment called reverse and if it lands on reverse you have to spin the wheel and do whatever yeah Um, But there's other things on there. So let's find out what I get. I've got the wheel open right now, and I am going to spin it. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm taking the first penalty of the season. I'm spinning the wheel. Here we go. Wheel of penalty. Oh my gosh. It was so close to automatic 50. (laughs) It was right next to it. Oh, you just (laughs) lucked out. It's just go hang out at your nearest airport for a while. Oh, cool. Your airport's cool. Dang. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go have to hang out at the airport this week, I guess. So what? how much time are you giving me to do this challenge? Two weeks. Two weeks. Okay, that's fair. I'll, I'll do it. And remember, with the penalty, we have to film it. We must make a short film of it or yep. we automatically lose that 50 bucks. That's an interesting one because in the U.S., that's more difficult. They don't like people hanging around airports. <laughs> <laughs> Glad yeah. it's not me. Because the closest one I have is like Rocky Mountain Regional Airport, and I don't know what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> Go there, have like a beer at the bar, <laughs> come back Just, home. They don't even, I don't even think they have one. Okay, well, moving on. Before we get into the episode, just a little uh, request, guys. If you enjoy the show, if you like what we do, please uh, share the show and give us a review if you don't mind. Even word of mouth helps a lot, helps us to reach uh, a wider audience And a little reminder that we've got a monthly challenge. Our new challenge comes from Linda King, the smart travelista, and that is travel writing. Write 100 or 1,000 words describing your hometown or where you live. And finally, if you want to join our little community and help sponsor and support the show, check out our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash attemptadventure. There you can make a one-time donation to buy us a beer, or you can sign up for a membership and receive all sorts of little benefits, including insider scoops about our upcoming guests and the ability to submit questions for us to ask in our interviews to those guests. It's just a way to help pay for hosting, cover the cost of uh, our domain, website, all of that stuff. 
Oh, I, I do have a rec- I do have one request. I would like if I if you if we ever have to pay each other fifty dollars, mm-hmm. but I kind of want it to be paid out in um, Venezuelan money because uh, okay. I want to feel like a big shot. Okay. Okay. So what is the exchange rate? Fifty U.S. dollars is twenty four million six hundred ninety thousand six hundred ninety one <laughs> Venezuelan bolivares. <laughs> Okay, so we just have to pay each other in stupid currency exchanges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one U.S. dollar is four hundred ninety-three thousand eight hundred fourteen. Okay, which you know maybe not. That might be offensive to anyone in Venezuela. Sorry, guys, you guys are in a rough spot right now. I mean, exchange rate doesn't necessarily correlate to strength of currency, but in this case, it does. <laughs> in so. this case, it does. <laughs> Some it does not. Yeah. Anyway, continue. I just I just thought that was funny. Anyway. That is hilarious. Okay, well, uh, you have to pay me. If you ever have to do it, I will accept $2 bills. You're going to have to find a way to either pay me in $2 bills or <laughs> in... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to mail you $2 bills. Kennedy half dollars. <laughs> <laughs> just mail you a, oh man, just 50 cent pieces. That would be sweet. I'll just give you a pouch of coins. Do you remember those really big Eisenhower dollars that were like really, really yeah. big? Just a bunch of those, 50 of those. Part of my graduation present from high school, like when I graduated high school, my uncle gave me, I think, 500 bucks. 200 of it was in Sacagawea dollars. <laughs> just a bag of He gold just handed coins. me a satchel of gold <laughs> coins. <laughs> Did you feel like a cartoon bank robber? <laughs> I, I felt like that, and I felt like a medieval rich guy. I love using like dumb denominations of U.S. currency because it just really trips people up. Like I do remember how all vending machines used to take those fifty cent pieces, but no one ever had them. So same with the two dollar <laughs> bills. People just hoard them when they get them. People just keep them. And it's to the point where people will like call the cops on you because they think they're fake. Yeah, yeah. Or if you pay with the two dollar bill. If I was going to make counterfeit currency, I, I mean, I feel like that's something you go all in on. If you're going to try, you might as well. If you don't think that $2 is a real denomination of currency, you wouldn't invent a fake denomination of money. You would copy one that's already made. Yeah. You wouldn't go to the trouble of drawing the, the signing of the Declaration of Independence on a currency that doesn't exist or on a, on a bill that doesn't exist. <laughs> that's a really complicated picture on the back of the $2 bill. Yeah, and like U.S. money is – it looks simple, but it's, it's, it's very difficult to counterfeit. But whatever. We're not going to get into counterfeiting. This isn't – this isn't that kind of podcast. It is not. But what kind of podcast it is, James, is a podcast about talking to fascinating adventurers from around the world. And that's what we're going to do today. Well, without further ado, why don't we just jump right into that interview? It's a fantastic one. I know that our listeners are going to love it. So, ladies and gentlemen, Scott from the Far From Home podcast here to talk about his adventures all around the world. Welcome, Scott. Welcome to the show. So glad that you're here. The first thing I always like to ask our guests is just to tell us uh, who you are, where you are, and a little bit about what you do. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. My name is Scott Gurian. Um, I'm a journalist and podcast producer. The reason I guess that I do that is because I think of myself as a lifelong learner and I love experiencing different cultures, different places, different languages, different foods. Um, and so that kind of gives me an excuse to, to go to these interesting places around the world and then share my experiences with other people. I travel, uh, or at least during non-COVID times, pre-COVID times, I've traveled a fair amount and uh, met people and found interesting stories You know, everywhere from... Cambodia to Iran to Mongolia to Chernobyl to Peru, you know, all over the world. Um, so that's kind of what I do. And I'm based in northern New Jersey, just outside of New York City. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about your podcast, your Far From Home podcast. Uh, so I've been doing it a few years now. Um, I, I describe it as a podcast of um, where I tell fascinating stories from far-flung places around the world. And uh, it's not just like talking about it, but actually bring my microphone along as I go on these adventures. So people listen and they say, I feel like I was there with you, you know, um, to kind of bring people on these kind of adventures just from the comfort of their headphones to places oftentimes off the beaten path places that the average person would not travel to places like Chernobyl or Iran or Mongolia, you know, that uh, aren't typical tourist types of sites. 
So I, I've been doing the show for about five years, over five years uh, now. And the way that it started is that my, so I have a background in journalism. I worked in public radio here in the US for many years. Um, and so I already had that experience. I also love traveling. I've been traveling for a long time. And a number of years ago, my brother and I, he's a few years younger than me. He's also kind of adventurous. We got in the habit of taking a big trip every year, like over Christmas and New Year's, because we don't have a lot of uh, close family left in the area. We figured that instead of just sitting home and making dinner for ourselves, we might as well go somewhere interesting, do something, uh, preferably somewhere warmer at that time of year when it's winter, you know, here in the Northern (laughs) Hemisphere. So we started going on these trips every year, and we went to Thailand and Cambodia one year. Uh, we went to Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. We went to you know all sorts of places. And one year uh, we were in Cuba, and we were in a tour group. Then we don't usually do tour groups. We figured we would in Cuba just for the logistics of getting around and everything. We do that. Right, and so yeah. we were in this tour group, and we kind of had some issues with our guide, and he kind of got drunk and abandoned our group one evening. And so all of us in the tour group kind of bonded um, in the absence of our tour guide, and we you know, became good friends and kept in touch. And, and one of the people in our tour group was this woman, Rosie, who's you know, a little older than us, um, uh, like middle-aged, and her husband, she was there with her husband, Alan. And uh, they're both British, but they now live in Australia. And Rosie, you know, very adventurous, has traveled quite a bit uh, around the world. And so we became good friends with her. We kept in touch. A few months later, she contacted my brother and me and said, hey, I'm planning on going on this big, crazy trip with my best friend, Jane, on this event that's called the Mongol Rally. And you'd get a little tiny car and you'd raise money for charity. You'd drive from the UK to Mongolia. And would you and your brother be interested in joining us? And we said, that sounds amazing. And it was pretty soon after, you know, we decided to do that trip. I figured, okay, I should document this. You know, I should start a podcast. This sounds like the perfect idea, not just the trip itself, but even just all the preparations that go into a trip like that. As you might imagine, it took months and months of planning of what kind of car do you buy, you know, getting your visas and vaccinations, planning the route, all the just the logistics, you know, that go into it. So that was kind of how I started it. And the whole first season of my show was documenting that crazy adventure. And then when I got to the finish line in, you know, Ulan Ude, Siberia, just north of Mongolia, they all flew home and I decided I wanted to keep traveling. And so I, a friend actually flew out to meet me and I decided to drive all the way back across Siberia and, and Ukraine wow. and, and Poland back to Europe. So that was pretty interesting and got to see a whole nother part of the world that I've so cool. you know, never been to. So that's kind of the story of how it came into being. That is so cool. You know, people don't really do big trips like that via road anymore. You know, people fly, people maybe take a train. I thought that, you know, that kind of epic road trip like that across the world isn't really possible anymore, but I guess it is. I guess you can still do stuff like that. Yeah. When we told people we were planning on driving to Mongolia, we often got the reaction like, can you do that? And right, like, why right. Why not? The land is all connected. I mean, the roads have been there. These are the ancient, it's the ancient Silk Road. Yeah, it's been there yeah. for millennia. So it's physically possible. People don't even think they could do it, but you know, why not? So Exactly. That, I think that's Great, right? With with adventure, why not? That's really the question I guess people should be asking themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, And as far as your point that, you know, people often just fly to places, they don't often drive. You know, it's often said it's a small world, which is true to a certain degree, but the world is actually really big. Like in between the cities, there's vast expanses that the average person never goes to, giant regions, even giant continents that, you know, people never travel to. Right. And so there, there's so much to see, so many places that people don't even think about. And when you're just like parachuting in for a few days, you know, flying or somewhere, you, you don't really get to see it as much as... Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, tra- tra- I love train travel, but driving's even better. And I guess if you really want to get adventurous, you could walk or ride a bicycle. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know if I'm quite into that. But um, yeah, no, driving, it's great. I mean, you get to see, you get to, you could pull off whenever you want and go down some side road or check it out and... Yeah, you have that freedom. Plan your own itinerary. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. That's really cool. With that in mind, what is your definition of adventure then? What does adventure actually mean to you? Because I know you also mentioned that during these COVID years, you've sort of been doing things closer to home. So how do you keep adventuring? What does adventure mean to you? 
Yeah, I mean, it can mean many different things. And and obviously, some people are more adventurous than others. And I don't feel like you need to drive to Mongolia to go on an adventure, like especially in these COVID times, you know, finding things closer to home. Um, I've been, you know, just figuring out how to just, you know, do I've been doing a lot of cooking, trying to going to the local Indian grocery store, the Thai market and picking up different ingredients I've never used before. And, you know, different recipes. I've gotten into home brewing and trying, you know, make my own beer and wine. Um, I've done some local exploring, done, done a lot of hiking lo- just locally, uh, places I've never been, even though I grew up in the area and, and thought I knew it pretty well, but there's some really cool places in the area. Got involved in volunteering with some local groups. There's this uh, group in the town near me. They have this annual design week event and they have this walk every year through uh, like this local brook that it just flows through the town. No one really thinks much of it because a lot of it just goes through tunnels and, you know, ditches behind houses and buildings. So they did every year they do this like nature walk down this Creek and parts of it, you're like walking through these storm drains under parking lots that like one of them is like a quarter of a mile long and you're wearing headlamps, you know, spelunking. And so it's like, you think, you know, the town well, but suddenly you're going underground underneath the parking lot of a shopping center. Like it's super cool. And yeah, you could do these amazing adventures without even leaving your neighborhood. Right. I think that's really important to keep in mind because not everyone has the either resources or even the desire necessarily to go far, you know, go on a a massive trip to the other side of the world. But there are ways to have adventure even in your own hometown. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. Oh, yeah, definitely. Not everyone's ready to, you know, hop on a plane and go to some developing world country like I, I think right, the little yeah. you can do to kind of maybe try something you've never tried before, learn a new language, like just be willing to go just even just a little bit out of your comfort zone. And I feel like you'll be a better person for it. Well, I, w- I want to talk about Chernobyl because that's fascinating. Not a lot of people have been there. So how did you get to Chernobyl? What was that like? Yeah. Um, and it's, of course, relevant now that it's back in the news. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I when we were driving, you know, I was driving back to Europe. Um, so I was driving my, with my friend Donna, we were kind of going across Siberia. Uh, and then we kind of at a certain point had to make a decision, well, how are we going to go? We could, could have gone north, you know, through the Baltics, through Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, St. Petersburg, or we could go south through Ukraine. And I, I mean, my mother's side of the family is from Ukraine. So I was kind of interested, you know, because of that, but also just the idea of Chernobyl, having heard about it. And I I did a little research and thinking at first, well, is it even possible to go? And, but it it actually is. I mean, there's tens of thousands of tourists a year who, who go. Um, and I'm sure it's even more now since that HBO, you know, documentary series came out. But so it is possible and people say, is it safe? But they, you know, they have tour guides who take people and they take them all the time and they have Geiger counters and they know where it is safe and isn't safe. Like there, you know, there are certain areas that are definitely not safe and they say, you know, stay here, stay on the pavement. Don't go into the woods over there because that's like some of the highest radiation levels in the world and you definitely (laughs) do not want to go there. But if you're here and you're, you know, you come on a tour for a day or you could, they have extended tours. You could even stay overnight and meet some of the local, there's like elderly local people who refuse to leave really? um, who still wow. live in the village yeah and they and they they seem to be okay they haven't come down with all kinds of weird cancers and everything you'd think they would have um so it is you know certain areas it, it is safe to you know or certainly for a short visit they say that it, you get as much radiation dosage as like a, an x-ray at the dentist or something so you know it's less than like a transatlantic flight or mm, smokers right. apparently there's a lot of radiation you get from cigarettes apparently um there's you know there's other sources so they they've measured it and i trust that they you know that they know, know what they're talking about <laughs> yeah so uh yeah so you just kind of do what they say and they have detectors when you're leaving so you're making sure you're you don't have radiation like on your shoes that you're tracking back to kiev or anything you know they 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 have a lot of steps of precaution so uh yeah but it's it's an incredibly fascinating you know, the eeriest place I've ever been. Just the pictures I've seen of it are just so spooky of just like the abandoned Ferris wheel and the abandoned classroom and all of that. I mean, technically they say that the tours aren't allowed to like take you inside of any buildings, but all the tour companies do. And they, I think the government just kind of looks the other way. And so you're wandering through these abandoned buildings, old, you know, preschools or, you know, uh, the community center with the, what was the Olympic size swimming pool that's now decaying or, you know, a auditorium. Uh, it's just super eerie to see stuff in this state of decay and you're stepping over broken glass and everything like this would never be allowed here you never mind the radiation just like the you right. know lawsuit hazards or whatever that you trip on something 
But yeah, just to walk through this abandoned village that was abandoned in, you know, vacated in the course of a few hours in 1986, when people were told, okay, you have to leave, you'll be able to come back within a few weeks, and they've never been allowed back. And so it's, it's truly, it's a cliche, but it's truly like a time capsule. Like you're, you're seeing calendars still on the wall from that month and that year. But yeah, yeah, it's just a snapshot in time. Um, so an incredibly fascinating place. Wow. That's, I think that's another example of a place that people just wouldn't think to visit. I think that even if people did visit Ukraine, a lot of people wouldn't even think it was possible to visit Chernobyl. So how do you find these places? How do you discover these places that people don't even think about? How did you, uh, so you mentioned how you discovered the, uh, the trip to Mongolia, but how did you even think to visit Chernobyl? I mean, like I said, I'm kind of a curious person. I read things. I do. I'm a journalist, so I'm always naturally kind of looking into right. things. Okay. I, I'll, I'll read some articles somewhere and I'll save it away. I have a big, you know, file with all kinds of possible story ideas and travel ideas. There are websites like Atlas Obscura and places like un, unknown, you know, hidden, interesting, quirky, you know, so there's a lot of places like that. There, I mean, there's so much online now that, you know, so many people on Instagram or Twitter or wherever that, you know, there's so many, there's very, well, I don't know. I was going to say there's very few parts of the world that haven't totally been traveled, but no, I, that's probably not true. Um, I don't know how many people go to Central African Republic or Equatorial Guinea or something, you know, but, but you could usually, you could find resources on pretty much anywhere. I mean, Lonely Planet has their, they have this thorn tree message board, you know, website where they have a message board for pretty much every country and every territory in the world. So if you're going to Namibia or wherever, some random place and you, you post there and say, Hey, I need some advice. How often do the buses run or what? And you'll find someone who will respond to you. So there, yeah, there's a lot of resources online and just through social media, you know, I'm going somewhere and I'll post something online and I, I know a lot of people in a lot of places at, or I'll, you know, someone will say, oh, my friend has been there or knows someone who's there. So just through friends of friends, word of mouth. Um, well, another one is Iran. So I know that, well, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's changed nowadays, but uh, for the last year or two, it was impossible to travel uh, as a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, it's very difficult to go. You have to go with a. Is it still true? You have to go with a tour group, or how did you go? Tell me about your, if, yeah, your experience if, there. Well, this was part of our road trip to Mongolia. So Iran was one of the countries, one of the, the like eighteen countries that we drove through as part of that trip. Um, so we went southeast across, you know, Europe, and then across Turkey, and then Iran, and then Central Asia, Turkmenistan, and a bunch of other stands. So we could have gone various different ways. We could have just gone through Southern Russia or something, but that wouldn't have been that interesting. I mean, I figure Iran is one of those places that very few Westerners get to go and it's right. kind of a once in a lifetime experience. And it was really good timing when we were there. This was in the summer of 2016 and it was right after President Obama had signed the nuclear deal with Iran. So people were so thrilled to meet Americans. And I mean, I I mean, to be clear, I think Iranians, just Persian hospitality, even if we went now, whenever we went, like, I, I think, I mean, it's the friendliest people of any country, uh, anywhere I've been, anywhere in the world. You meet total strangers and, you know, they're so excited to meet you and meet Westerners, practice their English. And within five minutes, they're inviting you to come to their home, come for tea, come right, for dinner, right. meet their families, stay with them. And they know a lot about Western culture, like that we met this young high school girl who was studying Shakespeare in school and her favorite TV show is Desperate Housewives. <laughs> so it's wow. amazing. Persians are, are incredibly warm and welcoming, but I think especially when we were there um, after that nuclear deal was signed, where the relations had kind of thawed between the US and Iran, it was a really good time to go. So uh, yes, if you're, if you're an American, a Brit or a Canadian, you have to have a tour guide uh, in order to get a visa to travel across of the country. If you're from other places, not, I don't think you do. Um, but so yeah, we hired a tour guide and he wasn't a government minder. Like he really was just a tour guide. And he just met us at the border from the West where we entered from Turkey. And then he just rode along in one of our vehicles throughout the journey till we exited uh, the border on the East by Turkmenistan. And we, you know, so we got to do a little bit of touristy sorts of things and um, got to, you know, see Iran and Mashhad, which is another big city and some really big temples. And yeah, it was, it was a really, it's a fascinating country. I I would love to go back someday. I've always wanted to go. You made a really good point. I think that sometimes people overthink when they're thinking about traveling somewhere, they overthink it. They think that uh, people are going to be angry or hateful or maybe discriminatory, or even that you'd be in danger traveling to some of these places. But 
uh, you know, people are really just people. I think most people around the world do realize that there's a difference between the, the country's governments and the people of that country and how they, you know, interact with one another. I, I found that to be the case as well. Oh, yeah. Same thing in Cuba. I mean, you think yeah. Cubans would hate Americans, but also very friendly, warm people there as well. Um, that Yeah, that's the case in many of my, you know, many right, places right. I visited. Um, yeah, of course, Iran, you know, my brother and I are driving across there and our father was really worried about us. And, you know, they're going to be chanting death to America and you're going to be in danger and it's not safe. And, you know, these are the perceptions people have. Um, yeah. And that's not to say there aren't genuinely dangerous places in the world, but you've got to do your research. You can't just rely on the media and what you see from afar. Like, you you know, if in doubt, you reach out to people through social media, whatever, like you want to talk to people there on the grounds and ask them, okay, well, I mean, you live there. Tell me what it's like. Do you think it's safe for me to go? If they think it's unsafe, then I'll trust what they say because they live there. Yeah, they, they, they know, know right. you know, <laughs> um, but they're going to know way better than watching the news on CNN or so like it's, it's hard that you get these impressions, but you know, it's, it's really hard to know from afar. Um, right. well, you know, also as part of our trip, I mean, before we went to Iran, we were going across Turkey and this was the summer of 2016 and it was just really bad timing. We ended up at the border to enter Turkey six days after the attempted coup. And mm. so we're, we're right, kind of right, scrambling right. at the last minute, like, is it safe? Can we go there? You know, we're trying to explore other options. What are, do we even have other options with the visa situation, you know, and our timeline and everything? I think there were some bombings at the, at the airport in Istanbul. You know, it was just a bad situation and we were concerned. So we reached out to a bunch of people online and, we, you know, friends of friends who lived there. And we said, hey, you're there on the ground. Tell us, what do you think? Do you think it's safe for us to drive, you know, drive across the country? Can we go? And they said, yeah, we think it's okay. You know, just take some precautions. And so we followed their advice and we, we were still, you know, cautious. You want to be prudent. So we purposely kind of just drove across most of the country. We skipped Istanbul and Ankara, which is a shame because I really still haven't been to Istanbul and I, I really would, you know, I still would like to go there. So unfortunately we missed that. We just went to Cappadocia, which is amazing in, in uh, central, you know, these old like caves where people have lived in for millennia and they launch all these yes, hot air yeah, balloons every so morning. Cool. It's such a cool place. Yeah. So we got to see that at least. But yeah, no, that's what I, what I recommend to people, you know, ask the locals and you could always hire a local, like what journalists do, hire a, what they call a fixer, like a local person, a, like a driver or a translator. I mean, you may need it for the language, but even if, even if you speak the language, like just someone who can show you around, tell you where is it safe to go, where is it not safe to go, like trust their advice. Right, right. Um, but man, what an experience. So where would you like to go? What is your next sort of adventure after... It's safe and practical to travel again. Uh, well, I, I want to reschedule the trip I was supposed to go on before all this started. Oh, um, yeah. I was supposed to go to Morocco. I still haven't been to Morocco, and that's been oh, on my okay. bucket list. I was so I was supposed to go to Morocco, meet a friend there, and then cross the border to go to southern Algeria to this film festival in a refugee camp in the middle of the oh, Sahara cool. Desert. Wow. Um, so yes, that would be an amazing story and an amazing experience. Um, obviously, yeah. it's been canceled the last few years because a refugee camp is the last place you want COVID nineteen spreading. But I'm, I'm sure they'll you know they'll go back to you know once everything is safe again. Um, and Algeria is also not a country that many Westerners get to go to. In terms of upcoming, like so that's I haven't planned that yet or rescheduled. Um, I actually just got an invitation yesterday for a friend who lives in the Netherlands now is getting married in over the summer. So I'll finally take another transatlantic flight. And uh, I, I guess while I'm there, I'll probably, I don't know, I have a friend in Switzerland. I may do a little bit uh, more traveling. And actually, I also tentatively, it's so hard to plan anything nowadays, but I, I, uh, <laughs> ten, ten, I tentatively actually signed up for a, uh, like a travel bloggers conference actually in Phuket, uh, Thailand oh, wow. in, Novem okay. in okay. November. I, more than just the conference, I just figured it would give me an excuse to go back to Southeast Asia and back to Thailand, which I love. And I've only been in Northern Thailand and, and Bangkok. I haven't been down to Phuket. So I'm looking forward to that. So I'll have to contact you when I come to the yeah, area. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We'll go out for some, uh, some street food for sure. Awesome. Well, another one of the experiences that you wrote to me about was the uh, the ayahuasca ceremony in Peru. Yes. Yes. Uh, and and am, I, am I saying that right? I, I think. Yes. Is that how you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that because that sounds fascinating as well. And that's again something that people don't typically do. Like, what was that like? How did you right discover um, that even? So I was in Peru because I got this like a, a kind of like a fellowship sort of a thing where I, it's this radio public radio producer colleague who lives 
uh, in Lima with her husband and she announced this thing, well, Hey, you could come and stay and live with us for a few weeks for like super cheap and like do some reporting or whatever you're doing. And so I thought, Hey, that's a really cool idea. I'll have like a home base and get to kind of spend, uh, cause that's really my goal when I travel more than just like parachuting into a place, which many Americans do. Cause they get so little vacation time. That's like right, the joke when yeah. you travel, like the Aussies will, or whoever will sp- take these long trips. And the Americans are always, people are laughing like, Oh, they're there for like an extended weekend. But yeah, no, when I travel, I really like to spend ideally at least 10 days or so in a place, maybe even a few weeks to really get to know the place. Well, Right. So that's, you know, I find it takes me just a week to really get my bearings. Um, and if I'm really like looking for interesting story ideas and off the beaten path kind of things and get to lo- know the locals, I need to be there for like f- for a few weeks. So in Peru, so I just, I was in Peru for several weeks and I didn't even go to Cusco, you know, Machu Picchu or anything. I still would love to go there, but I was there kind of to work and I just wanted to really get to know the city of Lima really well and to find interesting stories. And so one of the story ideas, you know, I'll often show up in a place and I'll do try to do a little bit of research ahead of time, but it's, it's hard sometimes until you're actually there on the ground. Um, and also my Spanish isn't great. And then just kind of the culture. Sometimes you reach out to people and they don't get back to you. It's that's just how things are. Um, so one of the kind of vague story ideas I had, I, I had read something about these like local markets. They call them like witches or wizards markets, like traditional medicine, oh, almost like almost like voodoo kind of stuff with like shrunken wow. heads and w- weird like mystical healing. Some of it's like natural medicine, but a lot of it's more kind of mystical and like casting spells and things like that. Wow. Um, so, uh, so I'd read about that and thought that was interesting. And I was staying at an Airbnb in Lima uh, with this guy, Jeffrey, who lives there. He's Dutch. And uh, so he he's lived there a number of years, speaks really good Spanish, knows a lot of people. And so when I was telling him about that idea, he said, hey, you've got to meet my friend Lucho, who's a, who do you call, he called himself a curandero, like a curer. Um, shaman would be what maybe we would say, but he, he's very adamant. Don't call me a shaman, call me a curer. How interesting. And so he lived in, in the jungle, like by the Amazon. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll come and meet you. He took, it was like an overnight bus trip for him to like come over the mountains, you know, into Lima to meet me. He stayed overnight. And then we took another overnight bus trip up the coast to this little city of Chiclayo in northern Peru, which is not a place that any tourist would go. There's really not very much interesting about the city. It's near like the Ecuador border. Um, and we, I tagged along with him to go to this Again, this like natural, this witches and wizards market. Again, he wouldn't call it that because that's kind of pejorative, but it's like this natural, you know, market um, where we went. I followed him tagging along as he went on this quest to search for this star shaped quartz stone that he had seen in this hallucinogenic vision he had that was supposed to have magical Uh healing powers. Okay, and right. So, so that was really, I did this whole episode about that. That was super fascinating. We, we didn't end up finding it, but it was still really interesting to go on this trip. And then we kept in touch. And then like a week or so later, he contacted me and said, Hey, I was, I got hired by these people in this like shanty town on the outskirts of Lima to lead this ayahuasca ceremony. And ayahuasca, people may have heard of it. It's this, um, like this hallucinogenic brew that's made from all these plants that grow in the rainforest that he, it's one of several healing things that he does that he, he brews this up and he, you know, gives it to people. It's supposed to cure all sorts of things, both physically and also like spiritually or whatever. If you're going through some kind of stress or trying to figure something out, it's like people taking shrooms or okay. something, I guess. So I tagged along to this this ceremony in this little shanty town. It was kind of a very poor kind of a place I would not have really felt safe going to myself, but I, you know, was tagging along with him and went to this house of these people where they all sat around in a circle. This is, you know, at nighttime, they turned out the lights and they drank these little like kind of shot glasses of this ayahuasca and then they started having these crazy like visions and and uh, you know some of them were getting really sick and i, I have like four hours of audio i recorded of this woman like vomiting in a bucket um, but, uh, but yeah just sitting in the dark and he's like he's like chanting and like playing a harmonica and like you know sprinkling like incense on people and you know, doing all these like spells and everything. And he, you know, has this like tobacco from the jungle, these cigars he's smoking and blowing the smoke everywhere. Super fascinating. So as part of this, he said, would you like to try a little? And I don't, I don't really, I don't do any, any drugs at all, even pot or anything, but I was like, okay, it's like, 
in the interest of journalism, I'll have like a little bit to Once try to you know, to try to kind of understand what all these people are going through to at yeah. least get a, an inkling of of you know a sense of that. And so he gave me a tiny bit of it. Um, very bitter, and it actually wasn't as bad as I thought, but it's not pleasant tasting. And it, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I guess I I don't feel like I had that much less than the other people. Um, it was, you know, maybe a couple ounces, but, um, I, I felt my, my stomach was a little, you know, felt a little uncomfortable, but then it went away and I, I had no other effects on me. And meanwhile, all these people around me are having these weird visions and everything. And, and Lucho kept turning to me and asking, are you feeling anything yet? I'm like, no, no. And I felt like almost embarrassed. Um, so it was kind of weird, but, um, I had no idea. I've never, you know, t- never taken anything like that. I had yeah, absolutely yeah. no idea what effect that would have on me. And that was... I mean, talk about stories where, you know, or experiences Gosh, yeah. where I kind of go out of my comfort zone. Like that's probably the top of the list. Oh wow, um, yeah. Cause I, you know, I was definitely a little kind of uncomfortable by that, but it, it ended up being totally fine. And I, I figured, you know, if I, I didn't tell any, anyone back home that I was doing this till after I did it, cause I'm sure they would have been worried, but right, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, I figured, I, I mean, I read up on this, I did my research, I interviewed this like Jesuit priest who like studied all the shamanistic practices and and he was like he's taken it a bunch of times and they're like oh, you know in this yeah. in this family they're giving it to like the, her grandmother this woman's grandmother and everything. I figured if they could take it it's gonna I'm gonna be fine you know right yeah um, right right so again it's it's like this kind of sense that people are so afraid of things you know in the one standpoint but like what do the locals do like it if they're fine with it. I mean, that's not always the case. Like I, I won't, you know, you got to be careful sometimes eating street food or whatever, because people's stomachs are used to it in different places. I, I get that, you know, right, for sure, yeah. um, but in other senses, yeah, if local people feel safe doing something, it's not always the case, but you know, I trust what the locals are doing. I feel yeah. like how awesome. Well, you know, one of the things that we like to talk about on this podcast is that a lot of times your good adventures really begin when something goes wrong. Have you had an experience <laughs> like that where something went wrong, but it led to an even better adventure? <laughs> in uh, in Mongolia, we, we I mean, we had all kinds of car trouble throughout that whole mm-hmm. big journey. And we, I mean, we had our radiator overhe- overheated in the middle of the desert in Iran. You know, we blew our head gasket in Turkmenistan, which is like one of the worst things that could go wrong with a car. And we <laughs> right. had to, we couldn't get it fixed and they wouldn't extend our visa. So we had to get, stick it on the back of a flatbed tow truck and get it towed six hours to the border of Uzbekistan and then wait a week, wait a week for a new head gasket to get shipped from Dubai. Um, so we had a lot of car trouble, but actually the craziest thing on that journey was not car trouble, but it was just when we just got stuck in Mongolia because these little tiny cars, we, the, the event, it's called the Mongol rally. And one of the rules of the event is they make you take a little tiny car that like they limit the size of the engine um, to like 1.8 or two liters, which is like a little tiny hatchback. Uh, right. Because the, th- the thinking is, you know, it, it's not suitable for a journey like this a quarter of the way around the planet Earth. Right. If you're in like a Jeep or a Range Rover, you're not going to have any kind of a uh... Right. (laughs) And they figure that if you break down, you'll be forced to interact with the locals instead of just, you know, zooming through these places. And so it'll kind of give you more adventures, which is all well and good. If I I get the idea if you break down a couple times, but in our case, we just had bad luck. And by the seventh or eighth time, it just like really sucks. And you're like, okay, I just want to be meeting more people and seeing adventures. I don't want to be stuck in another garage wasting more money, (laughs) you know? So that was annoying. But, but anyway, we had this little tiny car and I mean, part of the deal with the little tiny car like that is uh, it didn't have an air conditioner because, <laughs> I mean, it, we, we bought it in the UK and I think it doesn't get like super hot in the UK apparently. So they don't even, you know, I guess need to have air conditioners a lot of times, but these little cars, they're just the engine isn't powerful enough to have an AC, um, which was fun going through like, you know, the Karakum like desert, desert in Turkmenistan, yeah. <laughs> which is like the hottest and driest desert in the world. Gosh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that's one of the things. But the other thing is these little tiny cars just don't have a lot of horsepower for going up steep hills. And so that was definitely difficult where, you know, we're driving, it's a manual car. We, that was a learning curve we'd never driven mm-hmm. before, um, but trying to like put our foot on the clutch and like, like a little bit at a time to kind of try to make it up these steep hills. And it was, it was really difficult. Um, and so this one day we're going across Mongolia and the thing you need to know about Mongolia, at least when we were there, is that if you look at a map of the country of Mongolia, you'll see these lines going you know, left and right, east and west across the country. 
And you might assume that, okay, maybe they're not highways, but they're at least paved roads because these are like the main east-west routes in the country. Right, right. And not only are they not paved in many places, but they're like nothing more than like tracks through the sand and oh. the grass. Oh, man. <laughs> the, the, the main, these are the main east-west roads across the country. They're, they're slowly, they're paving more of it. And I don't know, nowadays, I'm sure there's a lot more that's paved than when we were there. But when we were there in 2016, there were large expanses that were still not paved. And so you're basically following these tracks of the vehicles that had gone ahead of you. Um, and, you know, just tracks through the sand or, or grass or whatever. And you're trying to figure out that, you know, uh, yeah, there's not a lot of cell service. There's not, you know, you're trying to compare constantly. Like we have like three different paper maps. We have like Google maps with, there's no cell service, but you start it from your hotel and somehow it keeps going when you're in between cities in between cell right. sites. So we're doing that. And then we have this like satellite device and trying to use the GPS on, on that. And despite all of this, we would still get lost inevitably because the country's just not mapped out very well. And we would, you know, see like a single line on our maps, but then in reality, the road would split three or four different directions. The road, the path would split three or four different directions. <laughs> and we're trying right. to figure out, okay, where do we go? Or it would split several different directions on the map. It would only be one way, you know, in front of us. And so it was, it was confounding. It, it was like just maddening um to figure out and there's and there's no signs in the country no street sign, not signs in russian or mongolian just no signs period nothing and it also has the lowest population density of any country in the world so there's not just someone you could ask if you get lost right so it's it's a hard country to get across uh, especially in these little tiny cars and it's big it's a big it's, place a, it's too. an enormous country it's a very big country it takes several days to drive across and then there's these river crossings you'll be driving along and you'll come to this like little creek or this river that you know sometimes there was a bridge that used to be there but then the bridge collapsed and no one bothered to rebuild it uh, or there was no bridge at all to begin with and so you've just got to drive across this little creek and we're in a little nissan micro which we can't go in very deep water more than a foot right. or so deep Gosh. so you know we we this one day we're driving there was this one you know river crossing we had to drive across and we my brother misjudged on the way out the exit and so we kind of got stuck and we had to wait a little while for a truck to come and, and pull us out uh just these guys in a truck we attached a tow rope and they pulled us out and then we didn't want that to happen again so later on in the day we saw another river crossing coming up on the map and we were like okay we've got to avoid this we've got to you know is, is there anything we could do and we saw that you know there was the path, you know, in addition to the main path that led right to the river, there was also a, a part that like branched out to the right. And we were looking on the map and we thought, okay, maybe we could go that way instead. And it will kind of like circumvent the river. We could avoid the river crossing and, you know, it'll just be easier for us, which is all well and good if you're on flat terrain, but it's very hilly there. And again, our car has very little horsepower. So we right. start going and, you know, we're going on this path and it's at first it's going parallel to the main path, but then it's like veering farther and farther off. And for whatever reason, we stupidly held out hope, okay, it'll rejoin at some point. And we start coming to these hills and they're steep hills. And I don't know how, somehow we managed to make it up them. But then once we start going down the other side, we're like, okay, we're not going to make it back up the way we came. So we just have to commit to this. Like, we just got to keep going. We have no choice at this point which was a really stupid decision because we had no idea what we were getting into. So, you know, we after the second or third hill, we yeah, we have no choice but to keep going straight. And we found, you know, they're, they're, we found these people at first in these shack that, you know, again, they don't speak any English. We don't speak Russian or Mongolian, but you kind of communicate through hand signals or whatever, drawing lines in the dirt or on our dirty windshields and kind of and saying the name of the town we're heading towards and can, yeah, can right. this, path, this path that we're going on, will it go to this town? And, and the, you know, these people, they have like all these, animal pelts hanging outside their house. They like live, they're like nomadic people, you know, whatever. Oh, wow. And, yeah. uh, and they seem to say, yes, you could, you know, this road would take us there if, if we understood them correctly. So we're like, okay, okay, that's a good sign. And then, you know, a few hills later, we come upon this little kid who I think he told us he was 10 or 11 years old. And he was like single handedly, you know, herding this giant field of like hundreds and hundreds of sheep and goats. Um, it's like 11 year old kid. And we, we, we said, same thing we said to him, okay, just to confirm, okay, this is the town we're going to pointing in the direction. Will this road go to it? And like crosses his arms in front of him. And he's like very adamant, like, no, it won't go there. And oh, we're no. like, oh <laughs> man, like we don't, okay. We, it sounds like he really knows what he's talking about, but we don't have a choice at this point. So we thanked him and said goodbye. And so then we came to this place. We went down this like 
it was like this rocky ravine, like a canyon kind of. And at the bottom, there was this little stream and we, it was super rocky. And so we, we just, one of us got out of the car ahead of it to kind of navigate down around the rocks to like tell, okay, turn the wheel a little left, a little right, you know, so we wouldn't get stuck. We get to the bottom and we see it's a little steep going up the other side. And we're like, we hope we'll, we're able to make it up there. We didn't even make it like 10 feet out of the stream at the bottom. Like we got stuck right there. Just to get the, we could not get any traction on these rocks. We oh, took wow. out the, the floor mats and put them under our wheels to try to get traction. Like nothing worked and we're pushing and everything. Right. So both of our cars were just totally stuck at the bottom of this like canyon area on these rocks and these streams. Um, and it's starting to get later in the day, you know, so the sun's starting to set and there's these like storm clouds rolling in. And we're thinking like, if there's a flash flood anywhere, this is where it would be in the stream. Um, and so we, uh, we're just stuck there and there's no one around at all. We go to the top of the hill and look around. There's not a single living being in sight. We see this like what they call a gur, like a yurt way, way off in the distance and we're thinking, should we, could we walk there and try to see, but we, we had no idea if there was any person living there. And, you know, if you've ever been to like the Grand Canyon or somewhere like where, if you're mm-hmm. looking at a long distance, like it could be deceiving. You have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. That could be 10 miles away for all, you know, <laughs> like who, who knows how long it would take you to walk there. Like you have no way of knowing. And so, and we could get all the way there and there might not be anyone there. So, you know, we're, we're just stranded in the absolute middle of nowhere. And so thankfully we had this this like satellite device that we had in case of an emergency, just like this, um, where we were able to send a satellite text to a friend back in the UK and we could send him our GPS coordinates. And he was able to relay our message to the American and British embassies in Ulaanbaatar, the the capital of Mongolia, which is on the other side of the country. Um, And they were then in turn able to uh, get in touch with local members of the Mongolian National Emergency Management Agency, who sent a team of guys out to look for us. And we got, we freaked out at first. We're communicating back and forth with them with, by text. And at one point they send us a text that said, you know, it's getting dark and they're like, okay, do what you can to stay warm and come up, you know, come up, give us your, you know, if there's any landmarks around where you are, if there's a hill or something and come up with a signal plan, like use flares or something. And we freak out and we're like, wait, are they sending a helicopter? Like, are we going to get stuck with a bill for like tens of thousands of dollars or something? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then we, we said, they said, no, it's just some guys in a truck. We later found out there's apparently no air support in the entire country of Mongolia. So we didn't have to worry about that. But it, it ended up being some guys in like this truck who came to to look for us. It got totally dark. We just, you know, got in our cars. We're trying to stay warm um, and the temperature's dropping. And apparently that, you know, at one point they said, oh, the guys are almost there. Get ready. And then they didn't come. We're waiting and waiting. And it turns out that they were using a different GPS system than we were or something. So they couldn't find us. Oh, there was so the wrong coordinates, sent, huh? They were the wrong coordinates. So then they sent out a second rescue team from a different city to look for us. They finally found this like at one in the morning or something. Super nice guys, didn't speak a word of English, but, you know, we communicated and and to make a long story short, they finally got us back to the main road. They were they were almost out of gas because they spent so long looking for us. So we had to give them some of our gas, uh, <laughs> refused to take any money that just some peanuts and, you know, they said the gas and some water. And uh, yeah, super nice guys uh, and, and, you know, left us back to the main road and left us there. And we, we said, you know, goodbye to them. Um, and then half an hour later, we're woken up by some lights driving up and we see the their truck coming back. We're like, wait, why are they coming back? It turns out it wasn't them. It was the guys from the other rescue team who had been looking for us. Um, <laughs> and the two you. teams. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there's like no cell service in this area. So they hadn't been able to communicate with the first team. So they had no idea that we had already been saved and that, what we had been through. And they're like saying, no, we could. And they're probably thinking, you idiots. Like, why did you have You're to call for help yeah. here on the main <laughs> road? Yeah, exactly. So, uh yeah, so that was an interesting ordeal. That's so funny. But, um, so and then and then like a few months later, after we got home, we told this whole story to the embassy, the American embassy. We eventually, you know, they wanted to hear a whole story when we got to the capital, and so we met with them and everything. Um, and a few months later, they actually emailed us a photo of the American ambassador to Mongolia presenting a certificate of appreciation to the head of the Mongolian National Emergency oh, Management cool. Agency for rescuing us. We apparently were the first American drivers they'd ever rescued, so we <laughs> we made history and we caused oh, cool. an international incident. So. Right. <laughs> That is amazing. 
Yeah, there, there's a famous uh, quote from a travel writer. Uh, I think his name's Tim Cahill. He said, adventure is physical and emotional discomfort recalled in tranquility. I like that. that <laughs> you're, you're in the middle of it and you're like, what the hell? Like, I wish I could just be home sleeping in my bed, comfortable and you know safe and everything. But you go through it all and then you're like the life of the party. You, you're, you're the one everyone wants to talk to at the bar or you know, hear your story. I love that. And so yeah. it you know, leaves you with great stories to tell. Awesome. So, well, if you could give a piece of advice to new adventurers, what would it be? I would say leave some room for chance, like for not like, don't plan out. I I myself have this tendency to, you know, the fear of missing out, like FOMO, you know, you, you, you do all your research, especially now with Instagram and everyone has a travel blog and everything. You want to do all your research and make sure, especially if you're like an American who has so, so little time to travel and you want to cram everything in and you want to go on this whirlwind tour and see, you know, a bunch of European countries in like three days or whatever, you know, it's like ridiculous. So I'm a big fan of traveling slower, like seeing fewer places, but really getting to know them well. Like, you know, if you want to see another country come back, make it its own separate trip. Um, so yeah, traveling slower, like if you're able to travel for longer, but, but at least slower, don't pack as much stuff in. And then also don't over plan. Like it's, yes, I, I do. I mean, I still want to kind of check off bucket list items off my trip, see the main tour sites, whatever. Um, and I usually get those out of the way in the first few days of my visit to a place. And yeah, I do do some research because there is that fear that, you know, I don't want to get all the way back home and then realize, oh, if I just driven 10 miles down the road that way, there was this really cool thing that I could have seen and I didn't know about it and I missed out, you know? Sure. Right. So there is, there is that fear. Um, so yeah, I do some planning, but I, I feel like there's a middle ground. Like you could do some planning, but also don't plan out every single day. Don't, you don't have to plan at every single restaurant you go to every, you know, you know, you have a general f- framework, what you want to do, what you want to see, the top things you want to see, but then allow some time to just explore, just walk through neighborhoods, talk to locals and say, Hey, wh- what's your favorite restaurant? Where do you think I should eat at? Where, what's a kind of a cool thing that like, what do the locals do for fun around here? What's something that like a place that, you know, maybe the tourists wouldn't go that you think is really cool. Um, to, you know, a- allow some room to explore and and just wander around. I mean, you don't want to like wander that, yeah. through really unsafe neighborhoods, but, you know, just wa- like go allow yourself to get lost within reason. Because yeah. sometimes that's when the most interesting, memorable experiences happen. Great. And is there maybe one country that you've been to that you would recommend that people should see or one place that you've been to that you would recommend people should not miss? Um, I mean, I really like Thailand, um, but aside, aside from, aside from Thailand, I really enjoyed Ecuador. It's a very diverse country. Yeah. My brother and I went there a number of years ago and I mean, uh, the Galapagos islands are super cool and that, and, and uh, yeah, that could be, that could that. be its own, own trip, obviously. And, and that's kind of an expensive part of the trip. But even aside from that, there were so many cool things going, you know, from, you know, going to the edge of the Amazon and experiencing that to Mindo, the cloud forest or the, you know, butterfly area. And there's this thing called the Tarabita, which is like this, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this tram. kind. Of, it's like open air metal cage thing that you're hanging on a rope, like on a zip line that goes from one side of the mountain to the other. Um, that was super cool. <laughs> you're, you're like with like four people. It's not like super fast, like a zip line. It's like traveling. It's like on a motor, you know, but okay, it's like right, this open right. air metal cage thing. It's like how they get from one mountain to the other. A rudimentary cable car. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. basically. Um, <laughs> so that was super cool. And we, we learned how to like make chocolate from grinding up the cocoa beans. This guy was showing us, you know, and uh, we were we went hiking in this place called Cajas National Park, which is super cool. It's near the city of Cuenca, where it's it's these I don't even know how to describe it. It's like these just hills with just like grassland. But it, we went on this really like overcast, like foggy day, and it was like otherworldly. Like it was so wow. cool. It was it was just like it was like we were on another planet or something. It was really scenic and beautiful and, and fascinating. And then we were there at New Year's, New Year's Eve, and there's this cool tradition in Ecuador, which I think I do in a lot of Latin American countries where people make these like effigies, like these stuffed like paper mache dolls. And at midnight on New Year's Eve, they like burn them in these giant bonfires oh, wow. to let you like represent their fears and worries from the past year. 
Interesting. That's and neat. So that was that was super cool. We 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 happened to meet these other Canadian tourists. And we kind of hung out with them, and we ventured into this again this part of the city that most tourists wouldn't go, but it's where like all the celebrations were taking place. Um, and we heard that all this is going to happen at midnight and we're there and we're waiting. It's like 11, it's like 1130. And we're like, we don't see anything around. Like, is this really going to happen? But then sure enough, at like five minutes to midnight, like people came out of nowhere and they started lighting these bonfires and like setting off homemade firecrackers and like, and burning, you know, these effigies. It was just the most amazing experience. The the coolest new year's Eve I've ever spent. Wow. Um, Yes. So that's, if you go to Ecuador, that's, I recommend going at that time of year, but I, I think any, any time it's, it's a, it's a really cool country. So yeah, awesome. That is super cool. Well, Scott, is there any uh, any last message that you'd like to give to our listeners before we finish up today? I, I guess just kind of repeating what I said earlier, just that you don't need to take a trip to Mongolia to go on an adventure. Like wherever you are, kind of on your kind of wherever your comfort zone is, or you know, I, just I, I would encourage people to just in their daily lives, just whatever small steps they can take to kind of venture out of their comfort zone or try something new or explore a different area they've never been to. Um, I would encourage people to do that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Now, where can people find you and where can they find your podcast? Uh, Sure. So the podcast again is called Far From Home. My website is farfromhomepodcast.org and they could just search for Far From Home on Instagram or Facebook and or in any kind of podcast player that they use, they should be able to find my show. And we are back. That was awesome. It was so much fun to talk to him. Yes. I've always wanted to go on some big adventure like that. And, uh, you know, I was looking up the Mongol rally that he talked about in this episode. It's an incredible journey uh, and they have other ones as well. They have the Mongol rally. They have the rickshaw run where you're given a tuk-tuk and you have to navigate the Himalayas or Sri Lanka or something like that. There's all sorts of incredible adventures hosted by these guys, the adventurists. So maybe, James, someday if we want to do a big push for charity, we can register for one of these, uh, raise some money for charity. I've always wanted to do the rickshaw rally. That looks so much fun, doesn't it? (laughs) It looks so great. (laughs) And you get a tuk-tuk. How cool is that? I just want to say, yeah, guys, go subscribe to the Far From Home podcast. He he takes his microphone all around the world recording podcasts from some really incredible places, giving you an insider look into these places that are totally off the tourist trail. So really a lot of fun. Please, please check that out. It's such a good show. Good. Well, James, it is time now for our favorite segment, Adventures in the News. And this week, it's my turn. Mine is actually from about two months ago, but it's still fairly relevant because we were on hiatus at the time. The oldest U.S. park ranger has officially retired. Betty Reed Soskin has officially retired at the age of 100, which is amazing. So she was a ranger at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park in Richmond. And the reason that she was working there is because she herself worked for the Air Force in 1942. She became a park ranger at the age of 84. Finally retired at the age of 100. Betty Reed Soskin is an incredible, awesome lady. And she has written a book, which you can find on Amazon. It is called Sign My Name to Freedom, A Memoir of a Pioneering Life. Uh, I have not read it yet, but it sounds really good. And what an incredible story. I mean, I would be so lucky to still be working at the age of 100. I mean, I'll say I'll say another point. I just hope I'm alive at 80. <laughs> I just hope I make it. Like, <laughs> much less be working. Imagine being 84 and being like, you know what would be fun? I'd love to be a park ranger. And it's not an easy job to get. No, it's not. It's really difficult to become a U.S. park ranger. But anyway... Congratulations on not only a job well done, but on a just an awesome life. Born in 1921, survived the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. She was a civil rights activist, took part in meeting to develop a general management plan for the Homefront Park. She was the California Woman of the Year in 1995. She received the presidential coin from President Obama in 2015. And she got to light the National Christmas tree at the White House that same year. So what a what a life. And uh, still going strong, 100 years old, finally deciding to step down and retire. Take it easy. I'm going to get the book. I'm going to go buy that right now. 
If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please consider giving us a review on your podcast app of choice. Maybe a five-star review if you're feeling generous. It really does help us out. Uh, Before we finish up today, one last reminder of the monthly challenge is to write uh, 100 or 1,000 words describing your hometown or where you live in the style of travel writing. You can find more content on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube where we are Attempt Adventure. You can always get in touch with us to send us listener mail at hello at attemptadventure.com. And if you want to help support the show, check out our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash attemptadventure, where you can buy us a beer or subscribe to become a member to help support the show and cover the cost of hosting and all of that good stuff. Folks, thanks as always for listening to the show. Thank you, Scott, so much for coming on the show. It was an awesome episode. Really enjoyed it. Uh, check out Scott again and links to all of his social media, his podcast, etc. are all in the show notes, which you can find on our website, attemptadventure.com. Thanks as always for listening. And until next time, keep adventuring.